every sports fan has an opinion. Well, these are ours. Ours. Welcome to Brock and Pep's unsportsmanlike convo. And here are your hosts, Brock Fleming and Pep Cariotti. All right, Pierre, welcome. We are. I don't even know what episode we're in, but I'm on vacation. You are at home. I sure am. And uh, because getting one of these episodes in while I'm on vacation is a little bit tough, uh, I think what we're going to do today is we're going to post one of the the Hoggy Hangout episodes that I did with the... So I have, for those who weren't listening to other episodes... Um, I did try and start a podcast back in the day called Hoggy Hangout, and that was designed to speak with basically O-line coaches and players and uh, kind of cater to the O-line community. Um, I go down to a coaches conference in Cincinnati most every year with uh, guys like Carl Tolmey and Scott Endicott and Hugh Doyle from the Ottawa area. Uh, we all talk shop, different techniques, all the things that are new for offensive linemen, even defensive linemen, and there's a lot of key guys that are there all the time. So um, I brought this uh, podcast topic up with uh, a one Howard Mudd, and uh, for those who don't know, Howard Mudd is a NFL Hall of Famer. He is uh, part of the 1960s All-Decade team for his time as an old lineman with the 49ers. Uh, and is one of the top O-line coaches uh, in the NFL. He's retired now, but he had uh, basically worked with uh, the O-line with the Colts when Peyton Manning was there, and we all know Peyton Manning's uh, stats on getting sacked were very minimal. Uh, Obviously led to a great long career for him. But uh, he loved the idea, and uh, as much as he loved it and pushed me to do it, uh, when you're doing a podcast kind of by yourself and interviewing guys by yourself at – it loses a little bit of the, uh, I don't want to say fun or excitement, but uh, I don't know. It's more business-like. It's, it's, it's definitely more business-like. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, now that I've been doing this with Pep, um, yeah, I don't think I'd want to go back to doing the, the one-on-one type interviews, um, hoping that uh, – anyway, there's a chance Pierre and I will take over the Hoggy Hangout uh, segment, maybe add that to our unsportsmanlike uh, convo repertoire. Um, but to give you an idea of what that is, uh, I do have one with the legendary Howard Mudd. I have uh, a few of them on tap, but uh, this one is probably one of my favorites. And uh, I thought I would play that for you guys today. You guys can listen to it if you want to. You don't, if you don't. Any feedback is obviously welcomed. And um, I would love to look at doing these in the future with some of these guys and having Pierre with me as well because a lot of back and forth is great and Pep's always got really good questions that sometimes I don't even think about um, and I take for granted that uh, people in the offensive line community might know but uh, Pierre will definitely bring those up so anyway hey I, listen is there is there any better offensive lineman name than Howard Mudd that's about as offensive lineman as it gets it really is because it's, it's unassuming it's dirty it's gritty um, yeah Again, but he, Google him. His face will scream offensive lineman pre-face mask, I think. Oh, yeah. <laughs> or he's pretty oh, listen, close. I, I had the privilege of listening to uh, the, the, the podcast, and it was uh, – it was a, I'm, I loved it. I mean, I loved the, uh, the professionalism and, you know, having a, having a man with a pedigree of Howard Mudd um, talk about, you know, offensive line play. And, you know, some of the stories he told were uh, – it was a pretty cool podcast. So – Glad that we're able to to rack it up on the UC, the UC. Is the that UC? cool? Yeah, I like it. I do it. I yeah. do it all the time. Yeah, that's your brother, buddy. That's uh, Curtis Fleming. Curtis Fleming, kind of with the UC. Woo! All right. So, uh, with no further ado, here is uh, the episode with Howard Mudd of the Hoggy Hangout. Let us know what you think, what you liked, what you didn't like. Do you ever want to hear it again? If there's certain guys you want to try and get on that you'd love to hear us try and uh, interview. Uh, by all means, let us know too, and uh, we will do our best to pull the six degrees of separation together and get guys on. I know Howard has, I think in this episode, he actually says, like, anytime you want to do this again, you want me to get get you in touch with somebody, you let me know. Uh, so if we can get this out, uh, then we can probably get some pretty good contacts on, I think. Anyway, Augie Hangout. 
Howard Mudd. We'll see you guys Enjoy. in a week. If you want to do more, you just get a whole, you know, just contact me and say, let's do some more. Okay. Cause I felt like we were just touching kind of a history and stuff like that. And you could, we could get more in depth and into the pass or run stuff you want to. Are you big boned? Does the term all you can eat make you smile? Then welcome to the Hoggy Hangout with your host, Brock Fleming, where we talk all things offensive linemen. All right. It's my absolute pleasure to introduce our uh, our guest today. Uh, he's a former NFL All-Pro guard with the 49ers and the Chicago Bears. Uh, he's a member of the NFL All-Decade team of the 1960s. He's a Super Bowl champion offensive line coach, and he's an author of one of my favorite books of all time called The View from the Offense from the O-Line. And I'd like to welcome Coach Howard Mudd to the podcast today. How are you doing, Coach? Well, I'm doing quite well, Brock. Thanks. Thanks for the introduction. It's nice. Nice things said. It seems like it was quite a lot of lifetimes ago that I <laughs> did that playing stuff. So, well, whatever it was a lifetime ago, you did it well, and it's uh, it's in the record books forever. So, uh, that's something obviously to be very proud of. Uh, why don't you tell us a bit more about your uh, your background and how you started playing football? How'd you get into this sport? Oh my gosh. Uh, well, genetics. I was bigger, <laughs> stronger, faster than a lot of the, my, you know, my high school mates. There were a couple of guys that were my size. And, uh, so, uh, and I, football became a way to express myself as an athlete. And I, I liked playing other sports, but that was the one that I really liked. And so I distinguished myself in high school and became an all state player and was recruited you know, at, at some, at some really big schools, I went to Michigan State when they were real, really good in the uh, early '60s. Uh, they ran me off because I got hurt and I couldn't perform for them. So those days, they you couldn't, they weren't going to wait around for you. They kick, they just kind of kicked you to the curb. They did that. Um, now, not to cut you off, next- but in your book, you sort of talk about that. I don't want you to go. I'm not going to get you to tell the whole book, but that story I need to hear from your mouth. You mean the one about going to Michigan State? And, yeah. And uh, okay, I went to Michigan State, and I started as a as a sophomore. There were two two of us out of our whole freshman class, and they started this guy named George Azar and myself. And uh, we we're getting ready in the fall for the first game of the year, and uh, and uh, a guy rolled up on my ankle, mm-hmm. uh, and and. Um, and he sprained my ankle. They put me in the hospital for a couple or three days. That's what they did though in those days. And they call it a high ankle sprain now. And that's usually about a four-week injury now. Well, they taped it up real, you know, and I went out there and gimped around with a, with a peg leg for that week and hmm. and, then, and sort of the next week. And I, I did play a little bit. And then Duffy Doherty met me out in the middle of the field um, and accused me of being a chicken shit. <laughs> And well, no, he did. He punched me right in the gut, and he says, "I don't know if you're tough enough for this." And I mean, he couldn't have he couldn't have uh, uh, demeaned me more by doing anything else other than doing something with my parents. That whole point. Well, my favor uh, just completely declined, and, and I, yeah. I even went to him in the off season and said, "Can I earn my way back?" And he said, "Sure, you come out and have a good spring." Well, I was late for the football meeting because I, I was in a chemistry lab. And so he didn't like that. And so I went through spring and had a lot of fun and all that stuff. And the guy that coached us, uh, we were kind of a scout team, and we called ourselves the Red Rocks for some reason. The guy that coached us was George Perlis, um, who ended up, you know, he was a great guy. And, but I didn't get back in. Um, there's a picture of our freshman football team where – I have it here in the house, and and there's a we're standing there, and you can somewhat, um, you know, uh, the uh, you can see me standing there, and I say, who's that shorter guy standing next to me? And I said, look at that face real closely. Well, it's it's Jimmy Hoffa Jr. We were really? freshmen. Oh yeah. yeah, he was a good football player. Um, I didn't know anything about 
no, the, you know, how notorious his dad was or any of that kind. I mean, when we got there as freshmen and, um, I, in fact, I lined up against this little guy and I said, well, this little shit ain't going to do anything. And so I hit him real hard. The next thing I know, I'm going backwards. Uh, he was on offense and he was a good player. Um, anyway, that, that's my story at Michigan State. So they ran me off. I quit football. Um, and, and a guy that had a similar fate of me had gone to Hillsdale. Um, and, and he, and he hunted me down in the summer and, and asked me to come down. And he was a high school coach and his name was Warren Sprague. And Warren picked me up. He drove about six hours to pick me up, three more hours to Hillsdale. And we showed up at, now here I was in the big time at Michigan State in front of 60 or 70,000 people. And I went to Hillsdale and there might have been 1,500 people at the game. Mm. And, and it was it really touched me. And then I met the, the coach, Muddy Waters, uh, who was Frank Waters, Frank Muddy Waters, who's dead now, but a, a Hall of Fame kind of coach. Right. And he um, asked me to come. He said, I, we'd like to have you here. And this is a family here. It, it, it really did. When I separated from everybody, I, I kind of sat there and kind of sobbed because I had a chance to go play again. So that's how it all happened. And then I went to Hillsdale and, and, uh, and on. <laughs> I got drafted by the 49ers. Yeah, so let me see, how do you go from Hillsdale? Now, you are in the NAIA Hall of Fame, so right. you obviously performed very well. But how did you go from Hillsdale to the NFL? And how is it, I mean, the draft process back then has to be a lot different than what it is today. So, like the team workouts and combines and stuff like that, did you have to participate in no that kind of stuff? thing as that. No, eh? No. No, um, I heard we played a game one time and I heard that there was a scout from the Pittsburgh Steelers watching the game. That's all I knew. And some of my friends from Michigan State had been drafted the year before. Um, and there were a number of them that played in the NFL. I kind of yearned for that, but I thought, well, I'm playing at a little school. I'm nothing's going to happen. Yeah. And, and so, um, I, you know, I, uh, I didn't expect anything. So the day of the draft, uh, actually right before the draft, uh, yeah, the day, the day of the draft, um, I didn't know anything. I, I got, I got back to the house we were living in and the, the, uh, the lady that owned the house said, Oh, they, there was a message here. You're supposed to go down to the field house. They want you, there's something there. So I went down there and it was a telegram that the 49ers had drafted me in the ninth round. Really? That's how I found out. Uh, no, no telephone calls or any of that. They, they put it on a, <laughs> and that's how you get drafted. And as it turns out, they were, uh, they were looking at a quarterback at a school that we played from Northern Illinois, who this guy ended up playing in Canada. His name is, um, let me see now, think of it now, George Bork. George Bork. Uh, All right. Yeah. He played in, Can- in Canadian football, I think. But they were looking at him and they said, well, I don't know about the quarterback. We like this guard. And that's how I got drafted. But nobody ever called me or anything. So I just showed up and, uh, So what were your feelings then, when you, when you got that, then when you got to the, the field house and they gave you the telegram that you had been drafted? Oh, it, well, it was exciting because, you know, I didn't know what ninth round, 12th round, 16th round, first round. I didn't know what any of that meant. It's just that I had a chance to go play pro football. And I went down to the field house and I, and there was a guy down there lifting weights. I needed to get bigger because I was, I had lost a lot of weight that year. I thought, I thought it was my football was done. And I met this guy that was, uh, I can't remember his name, but he was a power lifter. And I said, would you mind helping me, uh, you know, lift with me? And we, we lifted, um, you know, for that whole semester and stuff. And, um, and, and I gained, oh, 25 pounds. You know, got myself, ate some, you know, a lot of calories and stuff. And, and I got myself up to 255 pounds. And, and I, when I showed up and when I, in fact, when I showed up, the guy that signed me, uh, he looked at me and he says, gee, well, you, you told me you're going to gain some weight. It looks good. You know, nice. so yeah, that, and then that year, <laughs> interesting how I just told this story to someone, um, you know, your rookies, a bunch of rookies in the, in the thing and, and, uh, you're practicing and 
all that stuff, and you're in awe of these guys that you've heard, read about, and they're very familiar with their surroundings and all that. You're kind of uh, a youngster walking around hoping to be in the NFL. And uh, one night, one morning, I woke up. I don't know. Maybe it was a week after we'd been in, been there. Uh, I just know the guy was from Missy, uh, up in Eureka. There's a school up there. Uh, my, anyway, my roommate, who was a center, I woke up and he was gone. Walked away. Oh, really? It was kind of startling to me, and I went, yeah, okay. And that wasn't didn't scare me anything. And then uh, there was a discussion amongst all the rookies kind of band together, and they were discussing, you know, while going around the room and see if, well, you know, what do you think about who's going to make the team and all that. And I got up and walked out. I didn't want to hear that stuff. So... um, when I met, and then we went through the exhibition season and all that, and I made it. I called my mother on the phone, called my mother and dad to tell them I'd made it. <clears throat> and I'm in San Francisco. That could be three lifetimes from Michigan, you know, right. for them. I mean, it's forever. And I called them on the phone and I told my mother, because uh, my dad couldn't hear so well, so he always handed the phone to her. <laughs> and uh, he, she's, I said, well, uh, I'm coming home. She says, oh, well, that's okay. I said, in December. <laughs> and she had to mess with her, and she got all excited. She peed her pants. <laughs> she did. Well, that's a great. Well, that's my story about getting into the NFL, and and then from there, I, you know, it was it. Nice. So through, I mean, obviously, I'm looking at when you were a Pro Bowler too. Like it did not take you yep. very long to to get to that level, and then you were. Uh, Pro Bowl three years in a row. So you went. You were drafted in '64, and you're a Pro Bowler by '66. Um, you know, what do you think you attribute that to? Is that just hard work? Is it coaching stuff that you've gotten before you got the NFL or? Well, I got coached very well in high school. Okay. I did not get, I, at Michigan state, I guess, eh, I don't know. Uh, you know, such a factory. I don't know. That's a blur to me and, and all that. But I do remember the fundamentals that my, my high school coach taught me. As a as a you know as a lineman keeping down, keeping your your pads down and bending your knees and staying underneath people and things like that. So when I got to uh, the 49ers, the guy that coached me was a technician and he was a thinker. He made you think about why you did what you did. Every little step you took, uh, every assignment you had, it was related to. In fact, he would draw the play on the board, and you were you had to. You had to replicate that on a, on a sheet of paper, a blank. And I, I thought that was very interesting because I got to learn a lot about why I did what I did and what was going on and things like that. So I was kind of a thinking guy. And I – so, okay, so that just told you a little bit. You asked me a question. I didn't give you the answer. The answer is <laughs> passion. That's just a, passion. That's a good answer. I didn't go there, I didn't go, there to go home. Yeah, so you had that drive. So that, yeah, yep. hey, that's what separates guys. Yeah, um, through your NFL career, uh, you know what? Even in university, whatever, who would you say was the hardest D lineman you've ever had to block? In the NFL, anytime. Is that, anytime. Does that include the NFL? Sure. Yes, definitely. Okay. Well, I've got about two or three guys. One of them is Alex Karras. The two of these guys are well. I don't know. The other one might be dead too. But Alex Karras was played for the Detroit Lions, and he was very slippery, and he could embarrass people. Um, Merlin Olson, who was, you know, now dead, but he was an actor. I think everyone knows him as an actor, but he was the first, one of the first big men on defense, big guy that was an athlete. Okay. Um, you know, and, uh, and then there was a guy that was kind of unknown, but, in fact, we, we were rookies together, and he ended up playing on another teammate, Bob Brown, not the – offensive lineman, but this guy was a thumper, and uh, everybody had trouble with him. Uh, those are the guys that, that you know, when I played, those guys. All right. Who would you say now, it seems like there's always a, a guy in a locker room, or at least within a couple of teams, where they would be considered dirty players, or kind of like that play on the edge, but sometimes over the edge. Who would you say was the dirtiest player you ever played with or against? With Walter Rock, he was my right tackle right next to me. 
and he would die. You better, you better, uh, you know, when the, when the whistle is about to blow, you better drop your head because he's going to tear, you know, he's going to dive over the pile. He's always getting 15 yards penalty, <laughs> stuff like that. Um, and yeah. Nice. And then, you know, there's some pretty well celebrated guys. The Conrad Dobler is the guy from the okay. St. Louis Cardinals then. Um, and yeah, I, I don't know. I, there, there weren't a lot of really dirty players. I mean, there were a lot of things done, um, where people felt vengeful or, or, you know, aggressive toward your, your opponent. And you might peel back and hit a guy in the ear hole or something like that. But those are kind of fun things to do. Right. But as far as it out and out dirty, grab a hold of somebody and, and try to break their leg and stuff. I don't think so. I mean, I, I think we all respected the game and each other more than that, you know. The rules are a little bit looser down there. I think then, too. what's happened is is that there are some players today that they get away with it, you know, in the so, uh, public sentiment and social media and all that stuff prevents the, uh, the uh, uh, you know, the NFL from really coming down hard and mm. suspending people. I think the guy that's dirty and causes a guy to be hurt because of it, he ought to be suspended for the length of time that that guy is, is hurt. No, I agree with that. Yeah. Anyway, that's it. That. All right. And so, okay. So now you've, you know, you've gone through the NFL, you've had your professional career, you know, unfortunately it was cut a little bit short with uh, some knee issues. Yep. Um, then you went transition right into coaching. Basically what made you get into coaching after your playing career? Well, my, my, the guy that coached me in, in San Francisco, this guy named Tiger Johnson, Bill was this, he was a cerebral guy, but really tough. If you could play for him and he said, good job, that was worth gold. That was worth gold. Uh, so I, I really, um, you know, I, I really liked his style. And when I was a player, I went down to Stanford. I, we were in San Francisco, and I went down to Stanford to volunteer at spring football. And because I heard some, they were trying to go to this drop-back passing game stuff like the NFL. And so I thought, well, I, maybe I can help them. And I thought, well, maybe they can pay me in the offseason. Well, they don't. <laughs> I know you're laughing, and I am now. But I was looking. We had to kind of hit work in the offseason. Well, I went down to Stanford. And a guy named John Ralston was the head coach. And Mike White, who had a NFL, you know, so head coaching career, he was their line coach. And I went down there to find out if I could make some money. And John said, well, no, not. But I would, why don't you go down and talk to my line coach? I did. Uh, it morphed into me being at, you know, and I went out at, at spring football and, and helped them uh, teach them the stuff that I knew. And he gave me license to coach just like he was. And it was exciting to me uh, because of the, the intellectual part of it, but also, you know, the technique part of it. And I did that for two years. Then I got hurt at, in Chicago and at that time, I was, uh, in fact, I was, I had started to go to law school in the off season. And when I got hurt, I went, you know, afterward, I, you know, and I'm, I couldn't, knew I couldn't play anymore. I thought, well, I'm going to see if I can, I'm going to do this coaching thing and see if I like it. And, uh, that caused some problems with at home, but I, um, I, so I, I approached the people that had, you know, now the offensive line coach of Sanford was now the head coach at Cal. And I approached him and, and he wanted me to come and coach for him. So I, well, I'll give it a shot and see what happens. Cause I was, I would have to sell everything I, I had ever accumulated to finish the professional school. And I, so I started coaching. I've never looked back. I just absolutely loved the whole thing. So that tells you the story how I started coaching. And then um, I, yeah. I, I did that for a couple of years and, and, you know, the NFL was around and I felt like I thought, well, you know, I, I really feel, I know that I would feel at home more at home in the NFL. So I started asking questions. One guy turned me down and said, Oh, you need to learn how to coach going to college. And I did. And so I just called the head coach at San Diego chargers, Tommy Prothrow on, on the, just dialed his number 
and sent him a telegram. And then um, that I wanted to talk to him about being a, a coach. And he brought me down. He didn't know me. I didn't know him. And he, yet he used common references. And right. Then I started. Then I started coaching the NFL. So that was yeah. That was it. And nice. and it just kept going from there. Forty years of coaching the NFL, or thirty nine. Yeah. Well, you definitely put your time in. And I think uh, we'll get into how many times you you officially retired. I think too. You got about yeah. two or three of those. A um, couple of them. Now, uh, when you started coaching, which of your O-line coaches do you think you modeled your your coaching style around? Was it, you know, you talk about uh, your 49ers coach being a very uh, technical guy. Um, you know, I've obviously had a chance to listen to you speak and, and read some of your books and, you know, may or may not fall in line with that kind of stuff. Where, where did your style kind of fall into and how did you establish that? Well, it's real simple. Um, I I wanted to emulate what Tiger, how Tiger was. And... Uh, in fact, when we met at the clinic, I, I had spoken in the, one of my retirements and said to, uh, openly to those people, I said, if, if someone were to, uh, approach me and, and describe me and say, you know, you remind me of Tiger, uh, I couldn't be more proud. So I, yeah. it would really be, you know, more that. Oh, very good. Um, could you elaborate on the term mud method? Well, I'm different. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I, yeah, I'm yeah. in a lot of ways I'm different, yeah. um, socially and otherwise too. But I, in my coaching style, I didn't, I didn't go to, I didn't go to, to, to the university to learn to be a, a, a coach. Like people go into physical education that they want to be a coach. Right. I didn't want to do that. I I, I was a biology major and that, and and I had some thoughts about a professional school and then I tried that other professional school. In the meantime, I started. You know, I was very dedicated as a player to doing things the way they wanted it done, and and I wanted to be really good. So, you know, I, I tried to perfect everything. Okay, well. When this coaching thing started, I had no, I had no reference point. I had no place to, uh, to go. And the only thing I know is if, if you want to pass protect here, I'll teach you how to do that. If you want to do a cut block, I do that. Or you want to do this kind of block, I knew how to do them because I had thought about them myself. So I, I, um, I, I stumbled into the profession of being a coach. And then when I started, perfecting what I wanted to do, I'd start looking and seeing things that I liked. And I'd call that coach on the phone and say, how do you do that? And then it just got into me thinking about different techniques that I would do. And I didn't necessarily explain them in a classic way. And so it's morphed into uh, a style and an approach to coaching that I guess you would call a mud method. It would probably be like this. I, my tagline would be do a few things, but do them extraordinarily well. Um, I, I, when we pass protect, I pass protect one way. I use one method. I don't use four or five depending on situation, uh, play. No, you're going to go do the same thing all over and over like a dog. He goes out and pees in the same place all the time. <laughs> you can get better at it. You can probably find your spot if you yeah. if you just if you keep repeating. Well, I do the same thing in the run game, and I, I use the same sled. I use the same you know the same routine that I I go through pretty much every day, and, and that can get boring in an educational sense. Or you say we're going to do it extraordinarily well, and if you go through a, a drill and you do it well, you don't have to do it twice. Right. Not after you, not after you've perfected it. So that's different than most coaches. So it's a different approach. I do some, you know, I I, I grab the whole of some stuff and pass protection that I that I found in, from professional basketball, which I really like. Um, I I stumbled into something that I did as a player, and and now I do it. And a lot of people do it. I don't. I think. Um, so there's there's different things that I that are different than the classic. Go to the clinic. This is the way you do pass protection. 
So I'm I'm different. And and, um, so it's the mud method. And that's why it is. It's yes. I'm going to do one day, one way of pass protecting, one day, one way of zone blocking. That's it. You don't have to have five different combo blocks. You got one combo block. Where's the point of attack? And right. then you know when I do it, I kind of call it natural football because I think offensive linemen are athletes too, and you should coach them to the extent that they can be an athlete and and support that an athletic approach rather than a, a, a mus- muscular approach. So I'm quite different like that. Mm-hmm. Um, different and, and refreshing. Go ahead. Different and refreshing, I would say. Like, uh, yeah, thanks. You know, I had, the, again, the privilege of, of, of listening to you this year at the, at the Cool Clinic, and, uh, you know, some of the stuff that you were explaining – you know, even goes against traditional thought where, you know, the two feet off the ground. So instead of having, you know, the hop to, to sort of a, um, a double combo block or, uh, uh, against the, the bull rush, the stuff right. like that, the, the idea of, of shaking a man's hand and getting right. into that, the handshake position right away, uh, stuff like that was, was, uh, not only different, refreshing, but something that really gets, uh, at least it got my mind going and how to implement it, how to um, describe it properly and, and coach it properly um, to other players. Um, but uh, that's the one thing with the cool clinic I find is that every time I go, there's always something else that I, there's such a wealth of knowledge there that there's always a few things you pull. And it almost makes you question your own philosophies of coaching and how to adjust it. Uh, do you find yourself like going to the cool clinic for so many years and, and being friends with everybody? Do you find yourself constantly taking little bits from people and saying, Oh yeah, that could work or, and, and adjusting your philosophy in that kind of way? Well, I'm going to give you kind of the, uh, my textbook version of what, of someone that goes to a clinic. You should go to a clinic and either, and do one of, th- one of three things. You either, you see something that you really like and you say, geez, I'd like to adopt that. And you say, okay. Or you go and you listen to them and you say, well, I already do that. This helped me validate that. Or mm-hmm. you go there and you see something and you listen to it and then you reject it. But in order to do that, and and really do uh, let me see get a lot out of it. You have to totally listen, process it, and then make it either part of you, accept it, reject it, whatever that is. And so if I can, and so I I go there and I learn a lot of. Uh, there's always a lot of things that I that I learn. Some of it validates what I already did. Sometimes I like the other when we were there. I heard things that I've said before, <laughs> you know, many years ago. But, right, which is nice. I mean, it's a very flattering thing. It, but that wasn't. But I learned some other things that <clears throat> approaches to things that that you know I would, and I did this as I coached. I think people get they get they paint themselves into a corner, and they're afraid to 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 learn because they're afraid that if I if I ask you Brock how to pass protect and you've got this little thing you do, and I'm a coach and I'm supposed to know pass protection. By me asking you the question, my ego or my insecurity comes out and says, well, I'll, I'll show him that I don't know anything. And I think that's what people are afraid of, and they shouldn't be. Mm. If you're going to learn, learn and ask questions and, you know, uh, all that. And challenge your, your thoughts, challenge your ideas, because that's the only way you're going to stay current. Um, and it might be with the stuff you've already done. Well, that's great. Actually, my next question was going to be asking for younger coaches how important you thought it was to continue to evolve your philosophies as you uh, grow as a coach. And with your answer, right. obviously, it's it's very important. Well, I'll give you an example of that. Uh, many years into my coaching uh, in, in Indianapolis, it dawned on me one day. Now, I'd been coaching. I don't know. I'd been coaching 30-some years, and I was run blocking, and I had smaller guys and whatever, whatever, and I went, Wait a minute. And I stuck my hand on my head like this and I said, when you drive block, when you engage the blocker, excuse me, the defender as a blocker, you don't have to move him at that moment in time. I'd already, I've always coached that. But the thing that revealed to me is the only thing I should try to do is stop him. 
stop him where he is. That might be on my side of the line of scrimmage, but I've been, I've stopped him. He hasn't stopped me. So if I can get him stopped and then get my feet moving after contact, then that guy, when he sees the ball, as long as I've got contact, you know, when I'm moving my feet, then I can accelerate and, re- and redirect myself to the finish, and he isn't going to make a clean hit on the ball carrier. If he stops me, he just sheds me and goes and gets the ball carrier. Right. But I'm going to I'm going to stop him and keep. But I I was after 30 years of that. I went, whoa, this is revelationary to me. <laughs> <laughs> now, is that just something that came up, or was that something that another coach was talking about, or something just no, kind of sparked I just, it? It just happened to me that I reveal it to myself now, and I learned a lot about. Um, you know, there's some, you know, there's some experimental things and things that I did. I would ask, I always went to the, the combine, the combine and, uh, you know, for that thing. And I would always, um, you know, I'd look up a couple of guys and we would just privately go off somewhere and just talk a little bit. I might ask him one thing, you know, on your poll, what do you, what does the tackle look like if he's the second guy through on the counter? Um, or what does the guard look at? You know, and I, it would do the same thing that I'm telling you, which is I would either, oh, I really like that. Eh, I don't think so. Mm-hmm. Or, boy, I think I already do that. I'll just take this one little piece of information and make mine better. Nice. I think that's what a young coach needs to do all the time. Be careful, however, as a young coach, going to a clinic and saying, boy, I'm going to do, I'm going to do, I'm going to do that, whatever that is. I'm going to take that idea and, and implement it. Well, sometimes you don't know all of it. And if you're, or if you're going to adopt a brand new idea, take all of it. You know, if you, if you take all of it and then you're all in, like with the method that I use in pass protection. And if you don't, if you only take little pieces, and I did say something about little pieces, but I already have something that I'm comfortable with. I'm just trying to make it better. If you don't know, you better not just take part of it. Yeah. Make sense? Definitely. And your, um, I mean, your past protection philosophy, obviously, you know, you talk about your, uh, your feeling of offensive alignment being athletes as well, but you've yes. also, you know, and we all know, it's no surprise that the D linemen are generally more athletic than mm-hmm. the offensive mm-hmm. line. So we definitely talk, you talk about being more aggressive on a pass setting to not right. give the defensive linemen time to play games, to use their athleticism against us. Let's get on them as quick as possible. And you've been used that for, for years. And obviously your success with the Colts, uh, I forget mm-hmm. the exact stats. It was something like letting up 218 sacks in 183 games or something, which is pretty darn good. Uh, you obviously had a, a pretty decent quarterback back there who got the ball out fairly quickly. Um, but how do you think that philosophy within the Colts system for the guys that you guys had up front at that point with your quarterback, how, um, how did that help you be successful? Well, I came there with that philosophy because I grew up in, when I was a player, remember I go back to Tiger Johnson and his, his, uh, a lot of the, this approach, this mud meth and stuff is kind of simple stuff. In, the, in my lecture, I said a lot of this stuff I learned in backyard sports. You know, there was no coach there. We just learned how to stay between that guy and the basket. I don't know, without following him. Right. We just did it. Um, we went down. I said we went down to the Jan Koyak's house, and we they had the hoop, and we played basketball. Or we went down and played football. Well, we, you know, so we learned some some of these basic things. And so... Tiger said to us in pass protection, he says, well, get to him before he gets to you. He's a better athlete than you are. Really? Yeah, no kidding. I mean, <laughs> uh, you know, yeah, well, I, it, it was terrific because, you know, as I, uh, as I said, Merlin Olsen is a bigger than I was and so on, and I had to get in his chest before he got started. Now, did I always block him? No. But if I had backed up, it would have been worse. Right. So I, I, I grew up with that aggressive method. And then I, um, so then as I morphed into it, as a, with the Colts guys, I had one really good athlete, big man. And then I had a couple of guys that were smaller guys that were athletic, three guys in the middle. And then I had another big guy that was decent athlete, but he, he was so long long and all that he had to jump on people because if he went back 
they would have faked him out and stuff like that. Well, okay, so you say, well, why do you do that? Well, it gives you, it levels the playing field to go jump in a guy's face. And regardless whether you're the good athlete or not good athlete compared to the guy across from you, the better the athlete, the better this method works. The worse the athlete, the more chance it gives him to succeed. Um, and this aggressive method. And, you know, yeah, the guy's a better athlete. I have the snap count and I have the angle. I'm going to make him take the long way like I have the inside rail on a, on a track. So I'm going to make him run a little bit greater distance as long as I maintain my control of my body. Okay, well, I that's kind of the general philosophy of it. But I, uh, to get back to the, the quarterback and things like that, this method that I've used is um, – you know, I've used it a long time ago, and and I've had the pleasure of three Hall of Fame quarterbacks. And one of them is Dan Fouts, one of them is Warren Moon, and one of them is well, Peyton Wilby in the right. Hall of Fame. Well, they all like it because, and the guy I played with, his name is John Brody, who had a very celebrated career with the 49ers. And, um, and all of them liked that separation from the offensive line or the, the wall of bodies in front of him and then where he sets his back foot. They don't like that collapsing on him. So now to say, well, no one ever gets loose. Well, yeah, someone gets loose. But if if one guy gets loose, they can sidestep in, in the pocket and, and maybe get rid of the ball if we, we mess up. If the whole thing collapses toward them, they get anxious and they get bumped around and I see a lot of that in the NFL right now, and and I it just it makes me sick to see it when there's a better way to do it, but people don't know it, so they're not going to try it. You know, mm. they're afraid of it. Now, uh, for when we talk about philosophies like that, do you take into consideration uh, the quarterback that's going to be behind the line and what they're comfortable with and whatnot too? Maybe you know, let's say a quarterback was more comfortable with. Uh, you know, guys getting washed behind him so he can step up in the pocket as opposed to being uh, more aggressive and kind of keeping that, you know, lack of a better term, dish. I think uh, Coach Callahan mm-hmm. used that uh, term at the, the clinic. Um, do you ever have any discussions with the quarterbacks to say, like, what are you comfortable with? How does this work with in conjunction with your uh, your drop steps and, and reads and whatnot? And Well, okay, that's a good question. I No. Okay. <laughs> right. I mean, uh, you know, the idea is that, that um, I'm going to give you a good pocket, and it's going to look like that dish. And if people run around, I'm going to try to run past the quarterback and things like that. If you're a stationary guy like Peyton was, he likes to stand there, and then he steps up in the quarter, up in the pocket. The Most quarterbacks really like to do that, and the reason why they run around the athletic ones, the, the reason why there's, there's really, there's three reasons. One, they run to run because there's, there's everyone's covered. They're playing man coverage. He's got a lot of space. Two, um, there's, uh, there's no one open. So they start moving around because it's hard to stand in one place and wait for somebody to come open. Peyton would stand there more than others because he right. was not very athletic <laughs> and more, more like, what I called him, I called him Ichabod Crane. Um, and, but, and then, and then, you know, so some of them will stay in there. The, so they'll eat, they'll run because they can't to get to wait till someone gets open. The third reason is they have to run because or move because there's pressure from somebody that getting loose. Well, quarterbacks, those are three real good reasons. It's when the quarterback starts running. When he imagines pressure and there isn't any is what makes me nervous. Mm. So I'm going to tell that quarterback, this is the kind of pocket we're going to have. No, that guy starts running because it's imagined and we're backing into him. That's my fault. Right. If he does it because he, he's just nervous, uh, then that's his fault. But I see some quarterbacks that are starting to run when it's imagined and not real. That's dangerous. Because the quarterback then um, it it uh, it really restricts his decision making. So your guesstimation out of 218 sacks with the Colts in that amount of games, 
uh, how many of them were the O-line's fault? I don't know. Probably all of them. All I don't them? know. Probably, well, with Peyton, I'm going to say, I would say a third, a third, a third. Um, let's see, I said a third. A third of them, maybe a half of them, are a breakdown on our part. Okay. Okay? Um, some of them were a you know a break a breakdown in recognition on defense that rarely happened to Peyton where he didn't know someone was blitzing and got it out um, and you know sometimes you know he might drift in the pocket and give himself a problem and then he gets nervous mm. most of the time that we broke down it was because of I said a third I'm I'm not trying to uh, probably. Three quarters of them, I said half. It's probably more than that. Two thirds okay. of them would be our fault up front. Just weren't yeah. good enough, and the other guy was, you know. Um, and maybe Peyton would have maybe his fault would be uh, again. Rarely he would hold the ball because he was trying to get something special happen, and we just ran out of time. Okay. But um, it, it, that marriage that we had between Peyton Manning and the offensive line was a really good one. Uh, it was awesome. Well, yeah. One of the best ever. Well, I, I'm just talking about the behind-the-scenes part. Oh, well, I find, I don't know, uh, from experience, I find a lot of stuff, if it's behind the scenes and it has that kind of chemistry that definitely shows up on the field, in my opinion. Nope. But, yeah, no doubt. Um, on your philosophy, real quick, does your philosophy or, I guess, should your philosophy change or adjust according to the personnel that you have? I'm gonna I'm gonna have a, the same philosophical approach starting, you know this because I know that this is tried and true with with good athletes um, that are first of all you got to have a guy that's smart, you know, you know, and, and of good character, you know, uh, character and intelligence given the same kind of body types. Well, the guy that's got the character is going to be driven. And, and that, that's an important, the guy's got to be smart because he's got to understand the angles and all that stuff. And both those things together, I guess, give you the idea. Well, the character part is that, um, you're more comfortable in your own skin. You have to learn some of that. Okay. I haven't even talked about a body type because I, I, I know this works. And so my, my job as a coach is to sell you with why it works, how it works and how it'll fit you. Um, and I think the, and so I really, they're all the same. And okay. again, to, to the extent of your athleticism is how well it works. I mean, I was in one of my retirements from, I went back to work the next year or one year later in Philadelphia and I had Jason Peters and I had, then there's this guy came, came in and he'd, he'd been a backup for about four teams. His name is Evan Mathis. Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, Jason Peters was so good that year, um, you know, uh, Pierre Paul, he just shut him out. I mean, really? uh, the, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, and, you know, he just jumped in their face. So uh, I kind of had the same, I'm going to do the same thing all the time. I'm like that dog. Cool. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, that's all right. Um, okay. Well, I think... Uh... I think that's all the questions I had for you. So what we usually get into now is uh, a thing called a two-minute offense. So what I do Go is I, yep. I whip it off for you. So hopefully you'll be able to hear this uh, um, the little uh, countdown timer thing in the background. And uh, sure. uh, you got till it buzzes, and we'll go from there. Yeah, it sounds like Jeopardy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right, Coach, what's your favorite food? Uh, barbecue. All right. What was, what's your favorite movie of all time? Uh, Shawshank Redemption. Ooh, good one. Uh, what was your first vehicle? Uh, 1956 Pontiac, the Mudmobile. The Mudmobile. Yeah. Uh, did you listen to music before games? And if so, what was the song that really pumped you up? No, never listened to music. I was Nothing? inside of my head walking. I would, you know, people would make fun of me, and I'd pull up my hair and. I was just, you know, internalizing. Nice. Uh, what's your favorite sport to watch other than football? I like pro basketball, the uh, the uh, 
uh, I like the finals. I like the finals of, of the of the NHL. So that's two. I can't follow yeah. the puck on television. That's all. <laughs> all right. You're in a dark alley. There's four guys that are about to start a fight with you. You can have one guy with you. Who's it going to be? Wow. I'm going to have, uh, well, I can't, because they're the same guy. I'm going to have Jeff Saturday or Ryan Lilja, one of the two of them. They played next to each other. All right. Uh, would you, right now, would you rather be coaching football or riding on your bike? Mm. Motorcycle, to oh, clarify. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I like the motorcycle. I'd rather be on my motorcycle thinking about God than sitting in a, in a church pew wishing I was on my <laughs> motorcycle. So. All right. Um, one thing that's on your bucket list that you still haven't crossed off yet. Um, it has to do with motorcycles. I'd like to, I'd like to circumvent the U S run the, right? really? yeah, I'd like to ride the four corners. That'd be pretty cool. And then the last one that I'm going to ask you anyway, I had a couple others, but if it's fourth and goal, it's with the Colts right now. Fourth and goal. Do you run or pass? Oh, we're going to th- throw it. All right. I like it. All right, Coach. I want to thank you very much for your time today. It was an absolute pleasure speaking with you. I'd love to get you on again on a future podcast where we can talk a bit more about uh, pass blocking, run blocking, schemes, technique, really pick your brain. Um, we'll start getting some questions from some of our audience who we can ask you for next time we're on. Uh, for those of you who are looking to get a hold of uh, Coach Mud, he's got a website, uh, howardmud.com, where he does consulting and he does player development. Um, basically, anything you need, reach out to him and uh, and he'll help you out for sure. His book, uh, A View from the O-Line, you can find on Amazon. Um, and he also, you know, on the occasion where he's speaking, I would highly suggest uh, checking out the Cool Clinic uh, in Cincinnati every, um, May, I guess, uh, cool is the coaches of offensive linemen. Uh, it's a fantastic clinic. It's a Friday night, Saturday, and, uh, the amount of knowledge getting thrown around there is, uh, is second to none. That being said, coach, enjoy the rest of your day. Um, enjoy riding. Remember rubber side down and, uh, stay safe. Well, thank you very much. Thanks a lot, Brock.